All right, everybody. I am here today with Denise Shomo, the president of Cutter Financial. How are you doing, Denise? Hey, I'm good. Thank you. Good. Well, thanks for joining us today. So for those of you who don't know Cutter Financial, um, Cutter Financial does residual portfolio buyouts. That's kind of the main the main thing, right, Denise? Yeah, that's our focus. Awesome. So, so Denise, I thought we'd start out with maybe a little bit of your story. Uh, so I know this industry, it's always, I love hearing about how people got into it and everything. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up with Cutter Financial. Hey, I have a, I have a great story. Um, I actually began working for Cutter about 13 years ago okay. when my business partner and I were looking for a buyer for our ISO and Cutter was referred to us as a trusted and highly respected buyer. So we selected Cutter to purchase our portfolio. And when I think about it, the entire experience was really better than I imagined. The offer exceeded our expectations, and we received all of our earnout payments. We nice. felt we felt the agreement terms were fair and straightforward, and were able to close quickly. Um, thinking about it, I I feel that I've been through this experience on the sell side, um, and that has given me a unique level of experience from both the sell and buy sides, and it helps me in my current role leading the acquisitions team at Cutter. Sure. Yeah, definitely, and I can. Uh I can vouch for that. Uh, I've actually done a, a buyout through you guys and had a really good experience. Yeah. And so, yeah, we uh, we had a good time working together. Great to hear. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yes, that's awesome. So, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of agents and ISOs listening who are either, you know, they're looking to sell their portfolio or they are thinking eventually they're going to. So if an agent or an ISO is looking to sell a portfolio, um, what would you tell them about the process so they can be ready? You know, what information will they need? How long does it take? Give them a little bit of information about the process and what it looks like. Yeah, sure. Um, in, in trying to keep things simple, we evaluate a residual stream over 12 months using 12 months of residual reports in Excel format with no redactions, a copy of the agent ISO agreement, and usually about two recent bank statements. Sure. Uh, our typical our typical time frame for an offer is very fast, one to two days, and a purchase agreement by day three. Sure. Um, delays are usually caused by the ISO assignment approval process. They need time to decide if they want to exercise their right of refusal, and if they pass, we need to allow them time to begin preparing the assignment agreement. We fund as soon as we have the ISO's written approval. Right. Right. So let, let's talk about, there's a couple concepts you mentioned there that some people might not be familiar with. Let's talk about those a little bit. So when yeah. you talk about the, um, you know, you're making an offer. So what's happening is they're sending you the documents you just mentioned. You're loading that into your system and, and you know, looking at the portfolio attrition, um, you know, margins, you know, all the, all the variables you guys look at. And then you're kind of making them an offer that says, hey, you know, if you're able to assign the residuals to us, if your processor will allow you to do that, if your ISO will allow you to do that, then this is the offer we would give you, right? That's right. Right. And then the next step is now you go back to your ISO or your processor as an agent and you say, hey, look, I got this offer from Cutter. I want to sell my portfolio to them, which means the ISO or the processor has to stop paying that residual to the agent and instead has to start paying the residual to Cutter. Um, and so that requires this assignment agreement, right, where you're assigning the residuals from instead of the going to the agent, the ISO is agreeing to assign those residuals to Cutter. Is that right? Yeah, that's. That is exactly right. That's the uh, final piece. And so that's a tri-party agreement where the seller, Cutter, and the ISO sign off, and those residuals then get assigned to Cutter, um, the, and the ISO approves the whole transaction. And then what you mentioned the first right of refusal. So how, how common is that, and, and, and what does that mean? Give them just a little, little blurb on what, what that is exactly. 
you know, it's not that common for an ISO to uh, exercise a right of first refusal, but uh, and sometimes, you know, ISOs will buy agent portfolios or their right. ISO portfolios. Sometimes they will pass on it. But usually in every contract, every agent agreement, there's language in there. They want to be able to take a look at it. And, you know, there's a time frame that they have to they have to do their evaluation. So, so they'll get back to us and let us know if we can move forward, proceed forward. Sure. So basically, like you're saying, the agent will go to the, the company and say, hey, look, I got this offer from Cutter to buy my portfolio for X amount. And then sometimes the ISO might look at that and say, well, we might we might want to do that instead of allowing you to sell it to Cutter. We may want to buy it ourselves. And that's them exercising their first right of refusal, right? Right. We, we don't like when that happens. Well, of course. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. So, but that, does, you know, it does happen. But like you said, I, I think, and I've seen that too. I think most, you know, the, the, the bottom line is most ISOs are not in the business of buying portfolios. So they may not have the cash laying around that they want to do that anyway. So I think that's, uh, I would imagine, I mean, you would know better than I would, but I would imagine that doesn't happen all the time. I mean, that's probably fairly rare. No, no. Well, you know, and we, we do not want to compete with the ISO. So if the ISO is interested in buying it, we we definitely want to walk away and, and, and right. let the transaction be between the seller and the ISO. Sure. Got it. Okay. Um, okay. So let me ask you this. So um, obviously you've been doing uh, buyouts for a long time. Have you noticed any trends with portfolio value over the last few years? Um, you know, are, like are multiples getting better or worse? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What are the trends you're seeing? Yeah, you know, in general, I would say that I see static portfolios. That's with no new deals added, holding steady. The range for multiples really don't really change that often. Uh, of course, it also depends on what you're selling and the quality of the portfolio. Sure. In certain situations, you may see lower multiples attributed to higher attrition or other risk factors. Um, you may see multiples surge if the seller owns a unique technology or integration or has a fully active sales team. And then with the, t the sales team, they guarantee the purchase price with a commitment of new business. So in these sure. situations, buyers are enamored with the new business, not the existing portfolio. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in general, on static portfolios, I really don't see them fluctuating too much. They're just generally the same. Got it. So basically what you're saying is if you've got a portfolio that, you know, it's you haven't added a new account for six months or a year on that portfolio um, and it's you know it was pretty well seasoned before that you know those those are pretty static because it's it's pretty obvious you know you know what the attrition is there's just not as many variables with that kind of portfolio is that what you're saying exactly exactly sure. and it, you know the other thing you said that was interesting it sounds like you're saying if you have a portfolio that's a little bit heavier in technology in terms of you know uh, hey, I've got this portfolio of, you know, nail salons that are all integrated with a certain point of sale system and my attrition's really, really low. You know, obviously you're saying that's that's basically a higher multiple there because the attrition is going to be lower over time because you got it tied into that technology, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, technology. We're seeing a lot of technology. We're seeing a lot of integration. Um, hmm. And again, uh, other buyers really want the new business. Uh, so they're very enamored with the new business. Sure. Don't really want the existing portfolio unless it has the technology and the integration. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. So, uh, so we've talked about a few of these already, but what are the key factors that determine the valuation on a portfolio? Um, you know, what are some of the things like agents and ISOs could do to maximize portfolio value? And again, we already covered a couple, but what are, what are some of those key factors that they could look at? Yeah, uh, let me let me tell you the factors that lower the value. Okay, good. Um, and then uh, obviously the opposite is true, but uh, so we see a lot of inconsistent processing volumes or seasonal merchants. Like an example of that would be 
uh, a few merchants that process high volumes maybe during the summer months and then they then they they uh, trend downward for the rest of the year sure um, high concentration of revenues over a few merchant accounts uh, in this business we call that top heavy mm. um, other examples would be overly priced accounts high concentration of leases and cash advances um, higher than industry standard attrition bonus programs with unexpired clawbacks. Many ISOs are offering mm. bonus programs to try to lure their agents and then they throw in clawbacks and so if a merchant cancels within that clawback period, that usually is taken, it's paid to the seller, but it's taken back from the buyer. Hmm. Um, and then cash discount. Cash discount's the uh, the newest unknown component. Sure. Sure. Is it going to be around? What's it going to look like? What are the margins going to be? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Whole yeah. new, whole so, new I mean, segment. Those are a few. Yeah. There's many more, many, many, many more that we look at, but those are the, the key ones that I would say uh, <clears throat> would, would certainly lower value. Sure. So, you know, that was a really good segue into my next question, actually, which was about cash discounting. So, you know, what are your thoughts? Have you have you done some buyouts on cash discounts? Um, how much did that uncertainty affect the multiple? You know, I mean, what are what are your what are your thoughts on all this cash discount stuff and how it impacts buyouts? Yeah, I'm, we have actually steered away from cash discount for for the exact reason that it's just uh, there's just too much confusion and confusion and uncertainty between the surcharging, cash discount, convenience fees, and service fees. Yeah. I am aware that some ISOs are pulling their cash discount programs and mm -hmm. others seem to be scrambling to modify them as they find their disclosures are either not compliant with state consumer protection laws and the card brands. Uh, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll, we will evaluate this as this evolves. And for now, I guess that would be our position on this issue. Um, we have bought portfolios with a few accounts, but no full high concentration of cash discount. Sure. And so I guess the, the, you know, and it's always like that, I guess, because with, you know, when you're doing a buyout, obviously the whole concept of the multiple is you're buying future revenue. And so if the level of uncertainty about the future revenue is high, then of course that's going to be a much riskier transaction, right? Well, yeah. And also when uh, sellers start to convert a lot of their account, their accounts over to cash discount, there might be a spike in the residual, but we don't have the history of that spike. So there's a little bit sure. of an unknown component there. Sure. Yeah. Well, and obviously, like you said, the biggest unknown is, is, you know, what if you give somebody a really good multiple and then 18 months from now, <laughs> you know, the, you know, maybe it was on thesis or it was world pay or whatever. And, you know, in a, a period of months, all of a sudden, because of, uh -huh. you know, things coming from that acquirer, it's like that none, none of your merchants can do that program anymore. Well, now what do you right, do? Now you're going right. to switch them to surcharging and cut your margins by 40%. It, yeah. So that's, it's a concern. And yeah, interesting, uh, you know, well, I think we all are really trying to evaluate it and, and figure out what's next and is it going to stick and, uh, We'll, we'll determine that. But for now, I think it's just still, there's still too much uncertainty. Sure. Well, and I think that's really good information for people that are focused on surcharging cash discounting is, you know, hey, for right now, it's a it's a great program. It's really profitable in terms of residual. But, you know, your exit strategy is probably going to be down the road a little bit once things settle and everybody kind of knows like what's what's happening. Yep, I would agree with that. Okay, interesting. Um Let's see here, a couple of, well, really just, I guess one other main question I had is, you know, obviously there's different companies you can go to to sell your portfolio. Um, you know, Cutter, I think, would 
be the indisputable leader in this area for merchant services. But what sets you guys apart from other portfolio acquisition companies? Uh, what do you guys do that's better or different? Why should people go to you? Uh, well, you know, happy to talk about Cutter, and I have a pretty large list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, well, I really want to. I really want to highlight our expertise. Um, having been a buyer for so many years and having completed hundreds of su successful transactions means we really understand the market. We have a. We do have a stellar reputation uh, in the industry. We try to keep in touch with our sellers and we ask them for feedback. Um, that has given us a, a huge advantage. We, by hearing directly from sellers what works um, and subsequently adapting our services to either offer more options and, and more flexible terms. And obviously that results in a better and positive, uh, better, better and positive experience for all parties to the transaction. So that feedback we feel is very essential. Um, most sellers actually come back to us again and again as they build their portfolios. Yeah, sure. Um, so here, so here's something I hear often. We are the most responsive, meaning answering calls and responding through email quickly, and efficient with everyone's time. Um, I get, I, I hear that all the time. The basis for that comment is really directly from uh, feedback from sellers. Yeah, sure. And um, I think, I think that's important because uh, you know you need to be responsive. So. A few others I'd like to mention are we will purchase any size portfolio. In other words, no portfolio is too small, and there's no portfolio too large. We look at all of them. Sure. That's great. That, um, and and me, I want to stop you there for one second because yeah, that's sure. a really important thing to highlight because I know, uh, I know that there's a lot of companies out there that are uh, buying portfolios, and they have pretty high – you know, minimums. I know some that are only looking for portfolios over 10,000, over 20,000 a month in, in residual. Um, and so for a lot of the agents who maybe they, you know, you know, agents jump around in the industry, right? So they, they built a portfolio with one company, they've got, you know, uh, 4,000 a month, 7,000 a month, yeah. whatever. And then they jump to another company and they're like, yeah, I kind of want to sell that one, you know? And so what you're saying That's is right. you, you're, you're willing and eager to talk to those individuals as well as the big, the big ones. Yes, absolutely. And we also find that once uh, if an agent has multiple ICEs they work with and they reach a point where they want to consolidate, they want to sell one small one, that's okay. We buy we buy uh, very, very small, and we've bought some very, very large portfolios. Sure. Um, yeah, and so uh, adding new business is totally optional, not required. Most most buyers are looking for the new business, as I mentioned earlier, um, and the terms, of, the terms of the purchase are contingent upon the new business. Um, here's a, a very important one. We pay cash, not stock, and not a combination of cash and stock at right. purchase price. Right. And um, and I believe this is really important to know. All merchants remain with ISO that they're with. We do not move accounts, convert them, or sell them. Right. You're not you're not looking at, uh, at portability so no or anything like that. You guys are looking at it's no. a it's a purely financial transaction basically with you guys. Absolutely right. And um, so that's I think that's really important. Oh, absolutely. That's that's um, huge. Yeah, you know, and I also want to mention this very key point that Cutter has a U.S.-based operations staff in place uh, to step in and assist with the servicing of the merchants in any portfolio we purchase. So we have a relationship management team that builds rapport with merchants, so merchants are taken care of, just as any agent would uh, before they're selling to Cutter. Essentially, our relationship management team works with the ISO to resolve any and all merchant issues and retention. Um, they do it timely, and they assure that the issue is followed through. So our 
are having that team of people in place to take care of the merchants and knowing that as a seller that that's going to occur, uh, I think is really reassuring. Yeah. And so, I mean, I could go on. <laughs> well, let me let me, mention, are, let me mention let me mention two more. Let me mention two more just off that that I want to talk about that I think are issues people face. So, one thing I just want to add to what you just said is that I think in a lot of cases I've done I think four uh, buyouts now at this point. Uh, in my career with merchant services. And one thing I found is, unfortunately, a lot of times when you do a buyout, you know, of course, you're going to have your um, earn out or whatever you want to, I don't know what you guys call it, but you know, you're going to have the money you get later. So you get, you know, you get an agreement, hey, we're going to do this multiple, we'll give you this much now, and then we'll give you this much in one year or two years or three years based on attrition and, and, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of people they'll do with the buyout and then they basically just don't do anything with the portfolio, almost like they're hoping to not have to pay you the rest of the money. Um, right. <laughs> I don't know. I've, at least that's what I've seen. <laughs> I think I, you guys, I you guys kind of have an opposite philosophy. It's almost like you, you really are trying to help to with the attrition long term, so that and then you're you're just much more likely to get your the rest of your money. Right. I mean, it's like a partnership. So we work. We can work with the seller. We can handle the servicing on our own. In certain cases, we'll allow the seller to continue servicing the portfolio, and we're kind of just monitoring it, um, keeping in touch. But uh, you know, the fact that we've invested in a, a back office operations and a, and a relationship management team means that we're in it with the, I say the seller, the agent, um, we're in it with them and we are really trying hard to keep retention and attrition low um, and so that therein helps guarantee the earnout payment and our philosophy is we want to structure a portfolio deal transaction where the seller is going to get paid. We don't do what you just mentioned, which is try to structure it so they don't get paid. Right. That's just not a – it has to be a win-win situation for yeah. everybody. Right, right. And so that is our – that is how That's we awesome. structure our contracts, yeah. One other thing I, so, I just had to point out that I thought was really interesting that you that you mentioned, and I think a lot of people who have never done a buyout don't understand this, and that is you mentioned the relationships that you have with everybody in the industry. and. You know, for those that don't understand, I mean, pretty much the, if you're selling for a, a good sized company and you have a portfolio, I mean, that company could pretty much poison a, any buyout that they wanted to by either saying, no, we want to do it. Or <laughs> there's, as you, I'm sure you found many, many ways they can kill this deal. Um, maybe they have a contract that says they can kill the deal. I've seen many agent agreements that say, if we don't approve a buyout, you can't do it. You know, not even a first right of refusal, just you can't do it. So the key thing is with Cutter, it's like you guys do know everybody. So you've already done a couple buyouts with this with this company, and and at least in my experience, like with the last buyout in particular, I'm thinking of, um, that really did make a, a big difference that you knew people at the company that I was, you know, I had the portfolio with. So I just wanted yeah. to point that out. I mean, that's a big that's a big thing, right? That's a good point. Yeah, I I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because ISOs have a relationship with us. They trust us. They know. They absolutely know that we are responding, we're responsive. So sometimes we get emails with issues, we respond back, um, and they really feel like we're, we do a good job, and so they trust us. They know we're not moving the accounts, and that's what they're concerned about. So actually even yeah. closing a transaction usually goes a little bit faster because we've already got a process in place. Exactly. It's not like we have to go to legal and create new documents. It's already in place. Right. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Cool. Okay. So last thing real quick before we let everybody go here is uh, where do they go? So you got agents, you have ISOs here that are interested. They want to learn more. They want to get a, an offer from you guys. Where would you send them? Yeah, uh, I would send them to our website, www.cutterfinancial.com. 
and we've got on our contact contact us page or give us a call and we've got a an email address acquisitions at cutterfinancial.com uh, there's a little form to fill out on the website on the contact us page so uh, either one is fine and um, awesome Love to hear from you. Good. So let's see. That was Cutter Financial with two T's, right? So it's C-U-T-T-E-R financial.com, right? That's right. Awesome. And then you said acquisitions at cutterfinancial.com. Correct. Yes. Got Thank it. you. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, there you go. That's information on buyouts. A big deal in this industry. It's always uh, an exciting day when you uh, build a portfolio and end up doing a buyout. That's a, that's a fun day for to get that deposit. <laughs> So it's exciting. Uh, Denise, thank you so much for your time today. I just really appreciate your time and expertise. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. You know, I've been seeing headlines in the mainstream press lately about Visa and MasterCard planning to hike interchange rates beginning in April. Now, I've been following this industry long enough to realize this really isn't big news since Visa and MasterCard adjust interchange rates just about every April. Some years, Visa and or MasterCard will increase the rates for certain types of transactions, like card not present, or for certain types of cards, like platinum rewards. Sometimes the rates are reduced, as when the card brands want to encourage acceptance by certain categories of businesses, like medical offices. But just about every April, new interchange rates get published. That interchange rates are now the stuff of articles in national business pubs like the Wall Street Journal is, I believe, less about business practices and more about perceptions. The cost of credit and debit card acceptance has gone, gone from being a relatively obscure topic reserved for merchant grousing and obscure federal lawsuits to being a topic that just about everybody knows something about. We can thank retailers and their lobbyists for this. As I've opined many times, coming up with the phrase swipe fee to describe interchange was a stroke of genius on their part. It thrust the long-simmering debate over cost of acceptance into the forefront of the buying public's consciousness. It helped to shape the debate that led to the enactment of the Durban Amendment to the Dodd-Frank Act, and more recently, it's been mo a motivating factor behind cash discounting. As we've discussed, Visa has signaled that it doesn't like the idea of cash discounting, suggesting in a bulletin that these programs may run afoul of its rules. And that has led some ISOs and agents to tread lightly on this trend. But as I've replied when asked about it by agents these last several months, Visa's aversion to cash discounting rests on shaky legal ground, since the Durban Amendment clearly authorizes discounts for cash or other merchant-preferred methods of payment. Just to reiterate now, uh, and I'm going to quote from the Durban Amendment here, quote, a payment card network shall not directly or through any agent, processor, or licensed member of the network, by contract requirement, condition, penalty, or otherwise, inhibit the ability of any person to provide a discount or in-kind incentive for payment by the use of cash, checks, debit cards, or credit cards. In layman's terms, neither the card brands nor their agents can restrict a business owner's right to offer discounts for a preferred method of payment. There are conditions such as conspicuous disclosure and compliance with state laws, but otherwise discount for cash payments or other preferred methods are, perfect, are protected by federal law.
Yeah. I mean, it's a simple fact, you know, cash. And, and, and it's also, let's be realistic, cash discounting responds to a real market need. Acceptance costs that are simple and easy to manage. Right. Plus, it saves money. You know, and, and as you've explained many times, James, agents and ISOs like cash discounting because the margins are good. And yep. consumers don't seem to mind because most realize that it costs businesses money to accept cards. Sure. And they're willing to pay for that convenience. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, you know, the, the hot debate in, in the industry now is kind of like, you know, what is cash discount versus what's surcharging? Exactly. But I think the core concept is passing the cost on to the consumer. That's a need that's responding to the actions of Visa and MasterCard to continue, continue to raise, to the, raise rates. the rates. And it's and that's you know, there's another thing here too, I think. You know, everybody loves the idea of getting a discount. Right. You know, I mean I like the idea of getting right. a discount. Sure. You know, and, and despite all the talk about paying by card and newer electronic payment options like mo like mobile, for example, sure. right? Most Americans still like the option of paying for paying with cash. Right. Right. And I actually have a little bit of data to back up this this point. Sure. Yeah. You know, we've talked. I, you know, you know, everybody knows I'm a data geek. Sure. And uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and I think the, everyone's figured that out by now. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear, right? <laughs> right. But the Fed and the Fed Bank and the Federal Reserve Bank, they do an incredible job of collecting economic data. And one of these projects is uh, called the Diary of Consumer Payment Choice, and it takes the pulse of consumer payment preferences every three years. The most recent of these um, is data, includes data from 2016, and it reveals that cash was the payment instrument most frequently used by consumers, accounting for 31% of all consumer payment transactions in 2016. Wow. Now, to be, to be you know, truthful here, um, most of them are for small dollar purchases. Of course. Of course. You know, nearly 60% of in-person transactions under $10 were made for cash in 2016, according to the right. Fed. It's just it's easier to carry around a 20 than it is to carry around a thousand dollars. Right, of course. Yeah, you know. Um, more recently, though, there was a study conducted by the research firm Edelman Intelligence for the ATM deployer Cartronics. Okay, found cash to be Americans' second most preferred payment method behind debit cards. Hmm. 28% of consumers that were surveyed last year by Edelman said they most preferred paying by cash. 37% said debit cards. Credit cards were the preferred method of just 20%. Hmm. And digital payments ranked fourth with 13%. And, of course, my favorite thing to talk about, checks only got 2%. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is not, not uncommon. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, back in the days when I was young, you know, we would cringe if we saw somebody with a checkbook in the um, in the grocery right, of line. Right, yeah. You know, now I don't think I've ever seen, I haven't seen one in years. So. Right, sure. But, um, but here's the really interesting um, data point from Edelman. 73% of consumers said they regularly pay with cash despite having other payment options available. Yeah. And I have to admit I'm one of those. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an impulse purchaser. Mm -hmm. And uh, holding myself to spending only what I can pay for with the cash on hand is one of the ways yeah. that I kind of good strategy. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, it's tough. It's tough to get a credit card with a fifty dollar available balance. You know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't. Visa doesn't like putting those. They out. don't like to put those out. But <laughs> that's why they have prepaid cards. Right. right so. Sure. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you know, it helps me with my spending, and sure. and, and if I can shave a few few pennies off of the bill. Yep. Yep. I'll I'll be happy to do it, and so I think. That that choice, 
Yeah. That consumer choice is really it the is. key here. Yeah, it is. And I, it's, you know, the other thing, too, I mean, going back to the, the cash discount surcharge thing we were talking about, too, I mean, you know, this whole thing also, to me, is one reason why I do like the simplicity of the cash discount programs, mm-hmm. because it is cash or card. Right. I don't know how much understanding consumers have yet about the fact that it does cost money to run your rewards card, but it doesn't cost as much money to run, run your, your debit checkers. card. It's like, your, this is yeah. my Visa card. I don't know. Exactly. Like, and, I, and I think that's... To me, I think that's the hardest part for people to understand. Yeah. Like, you know, I've, we've talked about this before where I've done some, like, informal polling with my friends and family. Right. They all say, yeah, I don't mind. You know, I know it costs them. I said, and, but I'll say to them, do you realize that if you pull out that platinum rewards card, it's going to cost this guy more right. than if I give him my check card? Really? Why? I'm like, right. that's what's so complex for these guys. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the issue. I think, you know, surcharging, I think the big hill that surcharging has to climb up is obviously number one is all the state stuff, which we'll talk about next week with Jonathan Rossi. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other big thing is just the complication of like when you see that, that you know, service fee or whatever they're going to call it, surcharge that's there, you know, what is that applied to? Right. With cash discounting, it's really simple. It says we've done a price increase on everything and we'll give you a discount when you pay cash. Mm-hmm. With surcharging, it's like, well, you know, it's a credit card. Do, do people really understand? understand that the the thing in their wallet that's not a credit card no. i think a lot of people like that's a card it's it's plastic like, right to most people that i know i mean i think you know outside yeah. of people like us who are you know imbued in this business right it, a card is a card right so that'll, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out but really good data today and really interesting we'll kind of see how it plays out over the next few weeks yeah really interested to see this is questions from the field brought to you by instantquotetool.com With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So today, Patty, I'm talking about closing the sale. Oh, yes. So I've been I've been talking a lot of uh, agents about this, this issue of closing the deal. I even made a video about it recently and, and talking about uh, different tips for closing. I saw but, that. That was a good video. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So today I really want to talk to you, though, about two key practices that you can implement that will really, really help you to uh, make a lot more sales. Um, the practice number one is just to make sure that you're always closing. You're always asking for the business. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the most obvious thing. But as I talk to salespeople, a lot of them look at closing more as this real um complicated skill that they have to develop which is true mm-hmm. but there's another side to it which is it's this thing that you need to do every time right you know if you can't come up with a really good closing line then use a really bad one right but you have to close otherwise you're not going to make any sales and not make any money right and so um, I'll give you one of the best lines I ever heard was was just have I earned your business mm-hmm. you know simple line that you can remember if you get stuck in your pitch and you're like oh man I don't know what to do just say you know what, uh, Susan, it's been great talking with you today and going over all this information. Have I earned your business? You've mm-hmm. got to try to close because you've got to see where they're at. Right. You know, they're not going to just kick you out the first time you close. They're, they might say, well, you know, you haven't earned my business yet because of this and this. Well, then you deal with that. Right. But you've got to close every single time. And then if you really want to take it to the next level, the advice I've been giving salespeople is to work on getting from the first close 
to the second close to the third close. What I mean by that is Mm -hmm. get to the point where you will not leave a business until you have tried to get their business three times. Mm. This requires a lot of creativity. The first time is easy. It's an assumptive close. Have I earned your business? Or maybe you're doing a paperwork close like, you know, well, it's been great talk with you today, Susan. And it sounds like it's going to be a great fit for you. Let me just get some paperwork started. What's the legal name of the business? And you just start filling the paperwork out. That's the assumptive Mm -hmm. close. But these are simple approaches. Then when they say no to that one, Mm-hmm. Well, now one thing I, I tell them is that second close is all about getting the commitment level down, taking that commitment level down. So, you know, a trial close, for instance, you know, hey, um, look, I would never ask you to make a long term decision. We just met. Why don't we do this? Why don't you put your existing terminal under the counter and try me out for 30 days? If it doesn't work out, no hard feelings. But that way I can come back in 30 days, show you a statement. You've experienced it for a month. Mm-hmm. Now you get to make that long-term decision. You mm-hmm. know, that's that second close, taking the commitment down. Then the real elite salespeople, they find a way to get the third closing attempt. Mm-hmm. This is the one where you get kicked out of the business if you mess up. And that's okay because then you don't have to waste your time coming back. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if they're not interested. Right. But the way to do that third one is you got to dig a little deeper. So at that point when they say, you know, you do your close, your trial close and they say, you know what, I'm really not interested right now. I've got to talk to my business partner first about it or whatever. Um, you know, whatever the, the concern is at that moment, that's where you've got to start by digging a little deeper. If you want to go after the third close, you need more information because they've said no twice. And how do you do that? Well, you do that with very insightful questions. Okay. And you say things like, well, you know what? First of all, I would never want you to make a decision you're not comfortable with. Start mm-hmm. with a buffer. You don't want to make them feel comfortable. And then you say, just so I understand when I come back next time. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're in their, in their mind. That let Let the right. guard down, right? right? When I come back the next time. What are the main concerns? I mean, what's really going on? Obviously, something is really holding you back. What would that be? What's the what's holding you back from making that decision? Just so I can be prepared to help you out next time I come in. Uh-huh. Try to get down to the root of the problem. If they'll give you that root issue, well, really, I got screwed a few months ago when I switched. Really, my friend told me that they had a bad experience. Whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Then you go for the third close, which is a, if I do this, will you do this? Uh-huh. So then you go for the, well, I tell you what, that first of all, I'm so glad you shared that information with me. What a, what great information to have now. Now here, let me let me just throw something out and you let me know what you think if if this is, sounds good to you. Okay, so your concern is that basically you had a bad experience before, and I totally respect that. If I can come back here with three letters of reference for you tomorrow, are you willing to at least give me a shot just to try it out for thirty days once I'm able to show you that I have the respect in the community? Does that sound fair? Hmm. So the third close is about dig in, then. Use that information to do it. If I do this, will you do this? Mm-hmm. And then say, does that sound fair? And you will be amazed at what will happen because what's going to happen is two things. You're going to get a lot more yeses, which is always good. Right. You're going to get them faster, which is good. Mm-hmm. Now, the other part of it, though, other than the yeses is you're going to get more no's. And people say, well, that's bad. No, no, that's good. Maybe... When people tell you maybe, that is why you're not making any sales because you're ruining your schedule. You're coming back five times to get a no. Uh-huh, sure. Get the no the first time. When you yeah. really dig Don't in. Don't waste your time. Yeah, when you dig in and go for that third closing attempt, believe me, you will get the no right then. And you got to have the self-confidence to deal with the rejection. Right. That's sales. Right. They're going to tell you no, but here's the good news. No matter how forceful you are and how forceful they are in their response, uh-huh. at that point, you can always step back and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to push too far. I apologize. I just hope you and your family have a blessed week and just really appreciate you know you being here in the community and just shake their hand, look them in the eye. You're going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. And life will go on. The world will keep spinning. And especially if you look them in the eye, right? Exactly. Yep. So yeah. there you go. There's some tips on how to close more deals. Good stuff, James. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. 
Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.